Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Today on another edition of Smart Arts, we'll be talking about a few things that are happening around town. I'll be catching up with recorder virtuoso, composer, musician uh, and arts advocate Genevieve Lacey to talk about a brand new work being staged as part of Rising, Melbourne's Winter Arts Festival, which is coming up from the 7th until the 18th of June. Genevieve is coming in to talk about Consort of the Moon, a major new sound work, which is a a choral ritual building on an ancient piece of notated music, the oldest known piece of notated music in the world. And it's going to be performed in the Fitzroy Gardens Conservatory, and you as an audience can participate, or you can just sit and listen, whichever you prefer. Genevieve Lacey is, amongst other things... uh, a musician, an arts advocate, and kind of somebody who is has been described as a recorder virtuoso. And having seen Genevieve play a variety of recorders over the years, I'm very happy to agree with that description. Genevieve, welcome to Triple R. Thanks so much, Richard, and I'm very happy to be um, following in a line of um, Irish musicians, given my red hair and heritage. <laughs> <laughs> well. In terms of the work that you've come in to discuss, Consort of the Moon, it's going to be part of Rising, Mm. Melbourne's Winter Festival, which has had a kind of... uh, Checkered history isn't the right word. That sounds like they've done something wrong. They've had a difficult history because of COVID. Now it feels like uh, after last year's festival really had the chance to kind of get to grips with with what it wanted to be, and this year perhaps feels like it's realising that even more. But your work, uh, Consort of the Moon, talk to us about how long this has been in development. Well, it's been in development for years now. Like so many arts projects, given... um the ups and downs of COVID and all the complications of postponements and cancellations that we all know way too much about. Um, lots of things that were in incubation sort of took longer and their paths were more circuitous. And then suddenly we've got this great outpouring, haven't we, of creative content that's been brewing for a long time. So it's a really exciting time and it's fantastic to see it coming to life. And I'd agree, you know, our brilliant colleagues at Rising, it's been such a challenging time for them trying to navigate this, you know, kind of reawakening of this festival through these difficult times. So it's fantastic to see it taking flight and we're really, really proud to be a part of this year's one. So, yeah, we've been thinking about this on and off for three years um, and now we're sort of in the in the home straight of making it, which is always a time that's unbelievably exciting and sort of terrifying at, at once because you, you're watching the second hand stick away and thinking, will we make it? And one minute you think, yes, it's going to be beautiful and literally 30 seconds later you're thinking no no we'll never make it so you know we, that means that we're, we're on track basically given that it's had several years in development which is not necessarily always always the cycle for new artworks i mean talking to some choreographers i know sometimes they might have just two weeks mm. to in the studio mm. to make a new work before it's staged does that longer development 
help a work or sometimes hinder it if it's no longer as urgent and immediate as you wanted it to be? Yeah, it's a great question. In this instance, it's definitely helped. So I'm working as part of a large collaborative team and the the person who's right beside me who's creating it with it is a beautiful musician called Eki Valtime. And I think both of us are people who um, like to go really deep into things. And so having time to sort of intensively examine something and then walk away from it and come back six months later and then come back three months later has meant that we've been able to build something that we think is really rich and layered. And interestingly, we've discarded a lot of things. So that what the essence of the work has become much clearer to us over time. So we're grateful for the extra time, actually. Now, in some ways, it shouldn't be a surprise that spending more time to develop this work would make it a richer work, given that it is based on a very old piece of music that has had not just centuries, but millennia to be developed. This is... The, the work at the heart of Consort of the Moon is, I understand, the oldest known piece of notated music in history. Yeah, it is, which is a pretty astonishing thing. So it's, it's an incredibly beautiful, really haunting ancient melody that um, we think comes, well, we're pretty sure, um, comes from a civilization called the Hurrian um, uh, uh, civilization. So it basically this... Notation was discovered um, in an archaeological dig in the 1950s um, in a place that is in modern-day Syria and they basically unearthed uh, a large part of, uh, of a city that had been buried and among the many treasures that they discovered were all these series of clay tablets that were in fragments and shards. They've pieced them together since and they think that there were probably about 36 of them but only one of them has been able to be, um, I suppose, reconstructed enough that we feel confident that we actually know what it said and what was on it. So this comes from about 1400 BC, so we're talking now, you know, close to 3,500 years old. And it's not notation that we use anymore and this is a civilization that doesn't exist anymore. So for us that poses so many beautiful and really interesting and quite urgent, to use your word earlier, questions. Um, so in West, Western traditions, as, as you know, we, we have this strange thing that we write things down, which we think means that we can preserve them for a long time. But I suppose the flip side of that means that we give ourselves licence to forget because once you write it down, you no longer have to hold it in your memory. It's a huge difference, you know, between an, an oral tradition exactly. and a written tradition. Exactly, Richard. And so we got really sort of fascinated by that idea and this moment in history where it feels like collectively we are allowing ourselves to forget a lot of things. And so there's something about gathering around this reconstructed fragment and trying to create a spontaneous... Um, suppose improvised community around listening to it and making a ritual around hearing it that feels to us like it's a way of tending to culture, tending to listening and and this idea of um, if we don't take care of precious things that they might disappear. So there's sort of lots of poetic layers of thought behind it um, and that aside, just as musicians, it's a gorgeous melody and we love the idea of something that, because we don't know really how to read that notation anymore, all of this is speculative. So we don't really know how it sounded. Musicologists, ethnomusicologists, archaeologists, linguists have all done amazing detective work. So one of the other things we know about it that we love is that um, it's it, it was a song and it was sung... Uh, 
it was an ode or a hymn to a woman called Nikal. And Nikal was a goddess, a deity um, in this culture that had multiple deities. And she was a goddess of fertility, of fruits, of um, orchards. And she was also known as the consort of the moon. So that's where the title comes from. So we're really interested in this powerful archetypal woman who um, holds the mystery of this song. And so I, I suppose somewhere around this, her, her spirit is, is hovering as well. And all these many traditions that sort of gravitate towards gathering in a circle, listening, sharing sound together and evoking something that goes beyond the here and now, I guess. I'm fascinated to know how a piece of music from 1400 BC can be interpreted and can be reconstructed. Because as you say, the the system of notation they were using versus the system of notation we're using now are so completely different. And yes, it's it's an ode, it's a hymn, but was it written for a harp, a lyre, uh, a lyre and voice? Yeah, spot on. So we think it was written for a lyre and a voice and linguistically they're fairly confident about the text. So it is very much a, a hymn to this powerful woman asking for, for fertility basically. But in terms of the notation, this, you know, from music boffins out there, we're about to go into pretty esoteric terrain. But what they think is that what the notation is showing us is literally how that lyre was tuned So it's like a really ancient tablature or an ancient series of chord charts that tell you how to tune this instrument, which then from that they have been able to um, reconstruct what the melody would have been. So it's a whole series of brilliantly educated deductions and guesses. And again, that's so beguiling, isn't it? The idea that we don't really know, but someone's put a card on the table that seems plausible and then someone else has built on that and, you know, out of that... We think we have a melody, but there are multiple variations of this floating around and and we've sort of gravitated to a hybrid version of, of several that, you know, so it's speculation upon speculation, but we like the game of that too, because for us, it's, it's not at all about um, any kind of uh, perfect or historically accurate reproduction of this melody. It's much more about the idea of collectively remembering um, in order to... Uh, come together and and listen and to create something that they, that we couldn't do individually. And I love, as you say, that it, uh, as you said earlier, it's a it's attending to culture, mm. which is uh, tending is very appropriate given that Nicole is goddess of orchards, um, uh, and it's being performed in uh, the Fitzroy Gardens Conservatory, which many people will know. They may have visited it on a school excursion when they were young, or walked past it at night when it's kind of glowing luminescently like some kind of strange fungus in the heart of the Fitzroy Gardens. Um, And it's a very kind of warm and rich and and tropical place, which means in the middle of winter for rising, you'll enter from the cold and the dark into this kind of the rich, warm embrace of this performance space. Well, here's where I have both the good and the bad news, Richard. You've just given such a beautifully poetic um, evocation of that gorgeous space. That space is our gathering space and our box office space. So, yes, you will have the tropical warm embrace, but then... Outside into the dark? Outside into the dark. So, please, when you come to this, wear all the clothes that you own. And a particular tip from the last nights where we've been working out in the gardens... Wear multiple um, layers of socks because it's your feet that can get cold and wet and um, 
yeah, the warmer you can keep your feet, the better. So, yes, we gather in this beautiful glowing space, but then we take you into the dark and into the night and we take you to a spot that's close to the Dolphin Fountain, if anyone knows that spot. I didn't know that well enough. I thought I did know those gardens quite well, but it's like a magical glade. And so then we are sitting out in the elements and we promise we won't keep you there for too long and we promise we've got all sorts of things to help try to keep you warm, both of spirit and of body. But there's something about actually being in the night and being under the skies and being surrounded by these gorgeous trees and by possums and by birds and by the natural environment and that becoming part of the score that for us is really important because built into this is a kind of a... um, I suppose a transformation through this this process of tending to to culture and uh, I suppose by reference tending to land, we like to think that uh, we also become more and more attuned to the space that we're in and, and musically the transformation is from human voice sounding very much as, as we expect human voice to sound through to uh, human voice making sounds that are more creaturely. So basically we as a as a group of people sort of our edges blur and become porous and we gradually become creatures of the night as well. So there's this lovely metamorphosis there too. And also a blurring between artist and audience because audiences who attend Consort of the Moon as part of Rising uh, will be able to, if they wish, take part in this kind of moonlight evening ritual they will and we've tried to construct this with great care because we know for a lot of people the idea of coming to something and inverted commas having to participate is like a recurring nightmare from from school days so we promise we won't do that to anyone it's something that's constructed so that if your participation is simply to join us and to listen we welcome that and we will love that you know that active gathering to listen is a really important part of participation but then there are other the light touch ways that if people want to join us in making sound that will be possible and we've made a work that's really layered so um, any of the instructions will be very gentle and very clear the invitation is is wide open and and you can kind of join us in all sorts of ways so we hope that it's not something that's in any way scary but is is simply welcoming all comers and means that 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 you can um you can be part of it in whatever way suits you on that night Now, I notice, Genevieve, that looking at the list of uh, other artists and co-creators who are involved in this, uh, Byron Scullin's sound design, for example, will be playing a role. I'm very familiar with Byron's work. So talk to us just a a little bit more about what people can expect to hear as the sound kind of floods out and fills the garden. Yeah, you're so right to highlight Byron. He's, you know, rightly revered in this world and we're so lucky to work, be working with Byron and, and, and many of the people in our team. So we're, we're creating a, a space that we're thinking of as a kind of an archetypal ritual gathering space. So we process from the the tropical warmth of, of the conservatory through this beautiful park into this place that we think of as a magical glade. And once you walk into the glade, you discover a ring, not a ring of stones, but a ring of speakers. 
And these 12 speakers mark out this enormous circle and we will gather within that circle. And each of those speakers holds um, many wondrous sounds that come from recordings that we've taken from a whole group of incredible singers. So Byron's job is to weave the, the magic that only he can weave with sound design, which means that um, we've been playing a lot with perspective and changing people's sense of where sounds are coming from and whether they're human or whether they're not human. Um, and I suppose the other thing that's interesting to know is that as well as these 12 speakers that are playing pre-recorded sound, we also have a ring of live choristers and then we have choristers embedded within the audience. So we have multiple layers of sound makers within us and around us uh, that sort of that again mean that we're completely enveloped in this um what we hope is a really beguiling sound world so it's we're playing in so many ways with altering a sense of perspective and time and hoping that we can create a space that's really just dreamy and, and contemplative and beautiful for people and very much tapping into that sense of ritual mm. that is at the heart of mm. rising mm. Consort of the Moon, uh, you can experience on Saturday the 10th of June at 5.30pm uh, and then from Monday the 12th until Wednesday the 14th of June, also at 5.30pm, at dusk in the Fitzroy Gardens, meeting at the Fitzroy Gardens Conservatory. Uh, and the work will run for 75 minutes with tickets ranging from $25 to $49 plus a transaction fee. For bookings and more information, jump online and go to the Rising website. Rising is Melbourne's winter festival running from the 7th to the 18th of June. The website is simply rising.melbourne. So rising.melbourne to book to see Consort of the Moon taking place on the 10th of June and then from the 12th through to the 14th of June. I've been speaking with its co-creator, Genevieve Lacey. Genevieve, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you for coming in. Thanks so much, Richard. And I thought, given that there are so many different versions of the uh, hymn to Nikal from 1400 BC floating around online, that we might hear one. Composed circa 1400 BC. That's uh, a, a Hurrian hymn to the goddess Nikal, uh, the goddess of orchards and the consort of the moon, uh, which, given we were just talking about Consort of the Moon being presented at Rising, seemed a very appropriate track to play. That particular version of the the work was uh, performed by Braden Olson, and I just found it online. Time for us to talk about the visual arts next, and we're going to focus on the 2023 Tarawara Biennial, which is on now at the Tarawara Museum of Art uh, up on uh, Wurundjeri country in the Yarra Valley, and it's showing through until the 16th of July. I'm joined via the magic of the interwebs by the Biennial's curator, Dr. Leili Ashragi. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you. 
How are you? I'm well, thank you. Very well indeed. And uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Now, um, when you were invited to curate uh, the biennial, what were your immediate desires and wishes? What did you want to set out to achieve? I was really looking to uh, look uh, to focus on relationships that uh, withstand time uh, and uh, connections across different kinds of geographies. Uh, I was living in Mbandwa, Alice Springs. Uh, most of your listeners were in uh, eternal lockdowns, and uh, it, the ways of coming together and gathering uh, seemed quite impossible. So it was definitely a project born of the pandemic. Uh, and wanting to connect across vast distances and geographies and, you know, more recent uh, man-made borders. Were you concerned uh, at all that that, I guess, ideas seeded and grown out of the pandemic, that by the time they are finally presented, that some audiences might be just like, oh, don't even want to think about that anymore? Definitely. Uh, and so this uh, exhibition, uh, which is a proverb in the Samoan language, my language, um, it uh, arose out of that context of the pandemic, but it wasn't uh, responding to the pandemic uh, as a kind of a cre creative uh, material as such. Uh, I actually initially applied with a project more looking more closely at colonial monuments, uh, and it was the more recent, the, the second Black Lives Matter summer in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, in the middle of 2020. So I was looking at those kinds of things. And I actually thought that after having presented that and uh, one of the committee and the director of the art museum, Victoria Lynn, uh, with that concept that actually that wouldn't last the, st the um, test of time. So I moved away into thinking about uh, estuaries and rivers and lakes and um, relationships to non-human kin that, uh, that a lot of different uh, indigenous and non-indigenous knowledge systems around Asia, including First Nations across Australia and the Great Ocean, these systems teach us. Yeah. Now, uh, you've just reminded me of a recent exhibition that was on at uh, MUMA, the Monash University Museum of Art. It was some of the work from the uh, kind of latest uh, Sydney uh, Trainial, Biennial, I can never remember. Um, but it was, know, yes. Yeah, but it was talking about um, uh, one of the artists represented in that exhibition was the Birurung, the, the Yarra River itself, and recognising the sovereignty of the river. How important is that trend in the current art world and in particular when working with uh, and curating the works of First Nations artists? I think uh, you've hit the nail on the head and it is currently a trend in the art world, but uh, beyond uh, trends, these are uh, responsibilities of local and global Indigenous peoples to territories that have been thousands and thousands of the years in the making and in the upkeeping. Um, so I'd say that same with decolonization, the, you know, the undoing of structures that uh, hurt everybody, um, but some more than others, um, and withhold uh, the potential for coming together. Um, even when those th kind of things um, cease to become uh, the current fad or they're no longer trendy, um, the people who are most concerned will continue to work in uh, ways to better the situation for everybody. Uh, and so, I really think that uh, that exhibition, River Mouth at Mama, which is the touring iteration of the Sydney Binali Rivers, uh, curated by Jose Roca and then a lot of other colleagues, um, was really looking at some of these uh, those spaces of connection. And whilst that is an international exhibition, perhaps um, 
this exhibition, uh, what was used for the Civil War Biennial 2023? I conceive of it as an international exhibition um, composed entirely of artists uh, living and working in Australia, yeah. rather than addressing you know Australian nation state um, head on. Yeah. Now the uh, the Samoan uh, proverb, uh, which. Uh, uh, you have articulated beautifully, and which I suspect I would str- I'm going to struggle with. So I'm going to stick to the English translation. The canoe obeys the wind. Um, I love that idea, and also because of uh, what it says about connection and navigation and connecting people across vast bodies of water uh, and a knowledge system which has endured through centuries of, of colonisation as well, still unites people. Absolutely. And I was just home in Samoa with uh, some of my extended family over the weekend and uh, just double checked that uh, my understanding of the proverb was uh, correct. And, you know, like any proverb, there's many uh, figurative and um, literal meanings. Um, but, you know, this um, talks about the, the movement of vessels that are ocean going and also just in the more humble fishing uh, and diving in the lagoon or in the um, river mouth, uh, thinking about how all of those and understanding that uh, that kind of movement has to be in alignment with the stars, with the moon, with the sun, with birds, uh, and understanding also in uh, great ocean navigation practices that the canoe or the vessel is seen as an island and other islands come towards you. So you're not necessarily traveling between two places the, the, the distance between them are, is, is collapsing uh, in a relational sense. Mm. That notion of collapsing distances then, how, does that, uh, how is that referred to in the artworks in the exhibition itself? Are we collapsing distances geographically? Are we collapsing distances that might separate one culture from another? I think definitely um, the collapsing of distances is a deliberate move in terms of wanting to frame the work and working closely with artists who's, uh, you know, who are based all around Australia and have ancestral connections to places all around Australia and across Asia and the Great Ocean. Um, the collapsing for me is wanting to frame their work as uh, closely as possible in the art histories, in the traditions that they come from, uh, as well as uh, contributing to broader Australian contemporary art discourse and uh, our understanding of our place in the world as a society. So the collapsing is that, for me, it's about making sure that there's enough space uh, in the physical gallery, in the physical museum spaces for people to engage with the work uh, on its own terms, and also uh, a bit of a, a hope and invitation for, for audiences to meet the artists uh, and the materials that they work with closer to where they're from. Uh, and in that way, for us to collapse the distance between um, literacy and illiteracy in the other now, one of the artists who's represented uh, in uh, this year's Tarawara uh, Biennial uh, is Abdul Rahman Abdullah, uh, who was a guest on this show just uh, maybe about six weeks ago, talking about uh, the exhibition that was at Linden New Art. One of those works is now in this uh, exhibition out at Tarawara, I do believe, the, uh, the, the beautifully hand-carved crocodile. So actually, that work wasn't in the Linden show because okay. they're on concurrent. Um, but uh, it's a beautiful uh, assemblage of his recent works. Uh, and I'm, you know, continuing to work with Abdul Rahman uh, in, the, in my other capacity as a curator at the UQ Art Museum in Brisbane. So I think these are also really 
relationships across different institutions. Um, is that work, Tanpa uh, Senpadan, is it a beautifully carved uh, saltwater crocodile in gelatong wood with glass and um, like, uh, you know, like these uh, viruses at the time of conceiving of this exhibition, uh, like cyclones, anything that doesn't uh, respect the imposed border that humans have created. Uh, saltwater crocodiles go wherever they please and wherever it's warm enough. Uh, and if anyone who's lived in the north of Australia or Southeast Asia, you'd have a, a mad respect for these uh, great creatures. And I think in uh, for Abdul Rahman, uh, he was really wanting to look at and question who is the monster in such a scenario? Are we the monsters, humans, who have destroyed so many habitats for so many um, animals and birds? And particularly uh, where the Kampung, where his mother is from in peninsular Malaysia, is one of the two regions where the saltwater croco crocodiles still live. Um, and so that kind of, you know, the vast industrialization and canola fields and palm oil uh, plantations and these kinds of things of course, impact on many other um, species. And so the the beauty that's beguiling of such a uh, beautiful carving, of such a uh, you know, finely crafted carving, um, is something that kind of draws you in, and then you can like ponder deeper messages as well. Yeah. Uh, I was able to visit him uh, in, at, towards the end of last year, and um, I've always, particularly since the pandemic, um, really relish when you can spend time with an artist and the work is in progress. Uh, and not always just see what the you know the finished product in the gallery, which and I think that uh, that opportunity to to visit an artist is something that enthralls um, uh, many people. I I know uh, people listening to, to our conversation right now uh, the may not have the opportunity necessarily to go into the studio and to see a work in progress uh, and to talk to the artist about their practice and to observe them uh, at work. But I think. So many people are fascinated by that opportunity to to go behind the scenes, to demystify the the creative process. How important is having that, I guess, that backstage access, so to speak, using a performing arts term, uh, uh, for you uh, as a as a, a writer and a curator and a thinker? I think it's absolutely vital, uh, and I'm sure many people listening would also have. Uh, uh, reach their di digital detox limit of Zooms. Um, and I feel like I've actually given myself a good uh, breath away from them and now I'm, I'm fine to do them again. Uh, but so, you know, uh, with the pandemic, we were uh, forced to do quite a lot of um, Zoom interviews and uh, studio visits and catch-ups, telephone calls. And I was living in Mbandwala Springs as well, so it's a small town and it's hard to get to and from. Um, but we didn't have many restrictions there and... Um, yeah, so I, I was I really I think because we had uh, a bit more time than usual for a, for a biennial, uh, ended up having two and a half years to curate this exhibition and work with artists over a longer period of time. The there's a certain intimacy in the relationships. A few of the artists I'd worked with before, but most I hadn't, and was really cognizant and had been mentored by people to uh, make sure that there were different generations and different geographies. Um, of course, I would have loved to do a show that's mostly in Northern Territory, South Australia and Western Australia, but uh, Victoria has the best funding. And I <laughs> uh, really uh, recognise that, uh, you know, it's the, one of the most, um, 
but if not the most welcoming place for artists and curators in the country. And I lived in Melbourne for t- 10 years, so I can attest to that in my own career as well. It's interesting to hear that, though, that uh, a financial imperative uh, sadly can shape the curation of an exhibition. You can have an ideal and set out for one thing, but uh, as we all know, ideals sometimes get battered about a little bit kind of during a creative <laughs> process. Totally. I, I think it's just more of a realisation of artists who are able to uh, speak for themselves uh, in English, in in, uh, in the English-dominant society that we're in. I didn't want to bring many artists from re- remote communities uh, for whom there's like a strange intercultural brokerage happening. And if you have too many people from remote communities that uh, aren't uh, properly hosted and able to speak for themselves with the right interpretation or right kind of hosting, I feel like some of the messages can be uh, mixed and um, misinterpreted. And so I was just really cognizant of, of course, the geographic blend, but really wanting to ensure that the people who were able to work uh, were able to, you know, I was able to talk to them as much as possible. And multiple people speak other languages besides English. So, you know, it's not like a monolingual English uh, enterprise. Yeah, uh, reiterating, I guess, the importance of cultural safety in the creative workspace. Definitely. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Dr. Leili Ashragi. Uh, they have curated this year's Tarawara Biennial, the 2023 edition, which is on now until the 16th of July at the Tarawara Museum of Art out on... Uh, Get it out near Hillsville, and I'll give all the, the details about uh, how to get there and opening hours and so forth shortly. But, Leili, talk to us about some of the other artists and, indeed, the artworks uh, kind of, that you've selected for the exhibition. Yeah, I'd probably start with the first artist I was able to spend uh, physical time with. Uh, I was able to visit with Auntie Vicky West, who's a trollway artist, a pakana artist, based in Launceston. This when I was living in Nipoluna, Hobart, just before the borders reopened within Australia. Uh, and uh, she's created an incredible work titled Kalikina Braili, which uh, in uh, Palawakani um, means the bull kelp forest. And uh, that's a large installation with a projection uh, and sound work uh, where you start at the surface of the water and then it moves up and you can see the strands of the bull kelp forest moving underneath the water. Uh, and, uh, you know, really looking at the very close relationship between Palawa people um, and that resource, that, that kin, that relation of the Kalikina Braili, the bull kelp forests, which are used, uh, some of the kelp is used, of course, in Rikawa and water carriers and other kinds of ceremonial uh, creations, and then also in uh, in eating and, you know, food and other practices. So that's a really beautiful work in the North Gallery and really recommend uh, visiting and seeing, sitting with that work and then also sitting uh, right next to it is Ngumpi Home, a large installation by the mother-daughter duo uh, Sonia Carmichael and Lisa Jane Carmichael, who are Nugi Kondomuka women uh, from Mjerabel, Stradbroke Island, uh, near Brisbane, and are credited with reviving uh, particularly Auntie Sonia uh, is credited with reviving the uh, gulagi or the Kondomuka-specific um, basket uh, weaving practice uh, over the last five years as part of her master's. Uh, she spent time in British Museum collections and UQ anthropology collections. So they've created uh, out of driftwood from all of the very uh, tragic and recent floods around here, um, 
have, they've created a uh, Numpi, a home, an architectural form uh, from driftwood, and then also included mission baskets that were that style was taught to the grannies at Kapimba, uh, Mayora Springs Mission on the island, as well as uh, this revived indigenous uh, practice from that that territory, as well as it's actually the whole work is a connection to the creation story between Tualpin and um, Kawinka, the cottonwood tree and the mangrove. So some of the silk that is hanging suspended above uh, the driftwood and the baskets is uh, dyed with the bark of the mangrove. And the, there's multiple spots you can see as in a pattern. Uh, and that's actually um, like all of the diamond um, kind of square, rounded square shapes that you see as the tide goes out where um, stingrays sleep uh, when the when they come in at night. So, and I was really lucky um, to be able to spend time with those artists on country um, when I was visiting Brisbane and uh, able to see, you know, as the tide comes in, the tide goes out, a little reef shark and all these kinds of things. So there's, uh, I think there's a element of not rushing with this exhibition that has really shown in the work that people have created and in the way that I've been able to to uh, be extremely enriched by um, the encounters and the time spent with them. And hopefully that uh, not rushing then is also extended to the people who are going to visit the exhibition. So if you want to visit the Tarawara Biennial 2023, as I said, it's on until the 16th of July. Sounds like you should definitely take your time to view the work, linger in front of works by Hoda Afshar and many other uh, remarkable artists. If you've not been to the Tarawara Museum of Art before, uh, it's on Wurundjeri Country at uh, 313 Healesville, Yarra Glen Road, just outside of Healesville itself. It's open Tuesdays to Sundays, 11am till 5pm, uh, and I believe open every day of the year uh, except for Christmas Day, uh, apart from kind of uh, in terms of the other public holidays, so don't fret about them too much. So Tuesday to Sunday, 11am till 5pm, uh, and you can go to www.twma.com.au That's twma.com.au For more info on the Tarawara Museum of Art and the current Tarawara Biennial 2023, go out there, linger, spend time with the works, come back outside, wander around the grounds, try a glass of wine, wander back in. Uh, Leili Ishraki, thank you so much for joining us on the program today and uh, congratulations on your curation of the, the Biennial. I've not had a chance to see it myself yet, but several friends and fellow critics and commentators have and they've been deeply impressed. So thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much. Take it easy and go visit. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're going to talk about cabaret and the intimate art uh, and the intimate magic created by my next guest, the one, the only and the always fabulous Paul Capsis. Hello, Richard. Hello, Paul. Lovely, Lovely to, to have you see back. you again. You've been uh, up in Sydney, which is where you live, making art, and now you've brought something down to Melbourne to share with us. I have a show called Dry My Tears at the 45 Downstairs, a fabulous venue. It was a very special venue for me because of, I did Quentin Crisp there. So it's wonderful to be back. And the show was developed with uh, Francis Greep 
uh, who is the artistic director of the Song Company in Sydney. And that whole idea of singing in this particular way was Francis's idea because we did a thing early 2021 was a Mardi Gras and it was like a sort of half hour photographic exhibition with live models and the subjects of the photography were also performing and dancing and there was all this, uh, you know, music and singing and classical music and Meryl Tankard directed this particular thing. And at the very end, once the event was over and the lights would come up, I'd walk in from outside dressed as uh, Pina Bausch because Meryl has a thing for Pina. And I would walk in barefoot and start singing John Lennon's Imagine, Francis playing on the piano, in this uh, what was a women's prison, the cell block theatre, uh, with no microphone, no... And anyway, after this, Francis approached me and said to me, do you, do you normally work where you don't have a microphone and you sing in acoustic uh, settings? And I said, never, no. Which, because when you said earlier singing in a particular way, I was instantly going to pick up on that and say how particular, what is so particular about it. So this is, instead of performing with a microphone, with your voice amplified uh, and being able to use the, the vocal tricks that come with a microphone, for example, and somebody operating a sound desk to add a little bit of reverb here, for example, or <laughs> whatever, this is um, not you unplugged or unvarnished because both of those things sound, sound slightly negative in a way, kind of unvarnished, suggests raw or, or kind of rough. But, <laughs> uh, and I would not describe you as rough. But I, it does sound like this is an opportunity for you to allow audiences to share the gift of your voice with nothing else getting in the way. Well, that is exactly what Francis's idea was. I mean, I feel nude. Naked, stripped down, a little bit raw, a little bit unvarnished. I'm happy with those ideas. But the thing is, I've always performed, as you know, lots of makeup, not necessarily in drag, but, you know, lots of sequins, lots of voices, dead people singing, channeling, all that. Uh, Francis's idea was because of the John Lennon doing this Imagine without any anything, uh, no kind of um, tricks and things, was that he, he thought a, a program of singing like this was... And I, so there's no microphone and, yes, I feel... So what has happened with Francis is that I've had to learn a new way to sing. So... Because also Francis is from the opera classical world and he is also a vocal coach which has been an amazing thing for me. Confronting because, you know, I have my way of singing and then here's Francis and showing me how to breathe. Who knew breathing? It's a thing. And he accompanies you on a grand piano. Yes, he's very good. And given the acoustics of 45 downstairs, kind of that combination of, uh, of solo voice and piano mm. sounds like it's going to be exquisite. Well, we did our first show last night and the sound is amazing in there. It's got this... I mean, there's something about that room. There's this wonderful energy in there and the walls and the cracks and the pillars and the paint and, you know, and the floor... 
So, yeah, because I am the reverb queen of Australia. I'm renowned. I'm notorious. I demand the reverb. I want, I want Rod Laver Arena everywhere I go. So, you know, it, it's a really wonderful new challenge and also the material. So Francis wouldn't let me channel anybody. So you're not singing, I don't know, um, Diana Ross, Judy Garland, no. Shirley Bassey, Bette Midler. No. None of the, the, the divas. Who They're are not you? allowed in. Who is? What me. are you singing? Oh, well, that's the other thing. Francis had all these ideas about songs and started talking to me about Elton John and Billy Joel and I was like, what? No. I don't know. I just thought, oh, that's very pop. It's not my vibe. But then it was the way Francis plays them and the arrangements and the way the lyrics really pop out, you know. So, um, and some old songs, some songs I haven't done for a long time, you know, So, but it's always about uh, being present and not relying on all the other things that I've that I've usually performed. The how props or the... The props or the... The things that I've always loved, I love them, but the wonderful thing about this is the response the show's had mm. from people about, you know, songs that I'm doing, songs I've never heard of, people, you know, writers, you know. There's, the idea initially was to do Jacques Brel, Kurt Weil. Kurt Weil was the central initial idea. But then as we went on and... You know, then it was about more about the songs and the lyrics. Um, you know, uh, there's a song in French which took me two months to learn. Je n'attends pas. Kurt Vile to Billy Joel and Elton John is a bit of a leap mm. uh, in many ways, but it's also fascinating to, to hear you say that you are coming to some of these songs, uh, you have not heard them before. So instead of being influenced by the original artist or somebody else's interpretation, you are absolutely free to uh, to take ownership of them for yourself. Absolutely. It's getting right into the, you know, the sort of sort of deeper level of... Because I won't sing a song unless I can relate to what the lyrics are. I don't sing songs because they're popular or, you know, I sing them because I have to, I have to relate. So when Francis presents them, you know, I listen to the original and I go, oh, I don't know, that's not, you know, but then... He will talk to me about, but what about if we try this? This really brings out this line or this Elton John song, we flatten, there's a, if we flatten it, it takes away the poppy, light, sugary thing of it. You know, I, I guess I've always been drawn to sort of, uh, sort of dark songs, but songs about life, you know, that are real and relatable for myself and then hopefully for the audience. Mm. It also sounds, Paul, uh, that this has been an enjoyable creative challenge for you. At this stage in your career, it could be easy to rest on your laurels, mm. kind of uh, perform in a certain way that you know resonates with audiences already. And instead you're being pushed out of your comfort zone artistically and being pushed into singing and learning to sing in a new way, which, again, is kind of a, a wonderful challenge to embrace, a wonderful creative challenge to, to evolve your own practice as a performer. Absolutely. I mean, my initial response to this was re total resistance and the little voice in my head going, oh, for God's sake, do you really have to be doing this at your age? But I'm really glad I ignored that. And I, it was interesting. It was a real a point of making that choice of actually going, well, you know what? This is an opportunity for learning. 
And Francis is somebody I trust, somebody who is um, a wonderful teacher and he's just incredibly supportive and there's no judgment, which is... That's the thing I... You know, post-COVID also, I don't know about other people in the industry or performers, but for myself, it's kind of like the way we worked also doesn't work anymore. The way our brains work or how we process... Uh, the the work itself has changed, you know. <clears throat> I don't know if other people talk about that or I've had a few conversations with other performers. You know, there's a real challenge um, in just uh, going on stage and because everything is different, the audiences are different, you know, the way people respond is different too. Artists aren't uh, or weren't certainly as match fit as they, they needed to be or wanted to be, for example. Yeah. That's one of the, the conversations that I've had with so many artists over the last year and a half. Uh, for some, yes, the enforced downtime was a valuable opportunity to uh, learn new technique, master a new style, uh, work on something they kept putting off. But for others, returning to the stage was a challenge because uh, performing is like any other muscle. You have to exercise it. it ha you have to be toned and ready. Yeah. Uh, and stepping back onto the stage was frightening, I think, yeah. for a lot of people initially. Well, I'm the latter for me. I mean, I kind of, I guess because of the lockdowns and everything, I just withdrew and went further in rather than, I didn't want to, I couldn't even think about anything creative at the time except for making little clay figurines and that, you know, in a room by myself all day with clay. That's all I could deal with. I, you know, people were saying, well, you should be writing a show, you should be learning a new language. Couldn't do any of it, you know. Um, so it's mental health, isn't it? I mean, it's the mental health. Because I, what I realised that by then it was 38 years, 37 years, I'd not stopped. I, you know, I describe it like running, the running the constant running since I decided to be a performer from that time on. It was just been running and... And suddenly the treadmill stops. And suddenly it all stopped and, you know, the confronting uh, feeling of what that did, you know, and then trying to get on back to performing, whatever that is, you know. So but the, the, the opportunity with Francis broke, has broken that in a way because... Because, because it's a challenge and because it's different and also the way I'm singing because of the... Well, it started with Francis because of the song company which do all their work acoustic and mostly classical. So then the idea of not having a microphone and the reverb and also the women... But, you know, the voices are always there, I'm, sh I'm sure. Even though I'm not doing it deliberately, I'm, I know that there must be pockets of Janice and Judy coming through somewhere... But consciously, I'm not doing that this time. Paul Capsus is performing Dry My Tears at 45 Downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane, on now until the 28th of May, and I'll give some of the booking details in a moment. But, Paul, earlier you said you were resistant initially to the idea of this style of show, this style of performance. How did you break down that resistance? Or was it broken down for you? <laughs> I broke down, Richard. No, it was Francis. He was incredibly, like, he could see me freaking out and going, oh, God, this French song I'm never going to learn. It's too hard. And, no, let's try, you know, and he was so patient and broke it literally all down. And then, you know, there's songs, I do a song called George, which is more operatic and 
But I, I love that song so much because it's a story song, particularly about this um, gay man in, you know, from the South of America, in, you know, living in, I don't know, somewhere like um, Mississippi or something and is murdered. So, you, but, you know, the thing is, it's, it's requiring a different kind of way of vocalising. And the thing I've learned with Francis is that now I sing differently. You know, I just did a production of La Cage à Folle and I had to play Albana, I had to belt out, you know, I am what I am, damn it. No, but the thing is, it, Francis has changed the way I sing and now I'm able to sing a lot with a different technique and not strain, if that makes any sense, yeah. because of the breathing being so different and the placement and all that stuff. You know. It sounds like it's been <laughs> like a fascinating leap forward in, a, in an unexpected direction for your totally. career. Totally. I mean, the response, as I said before, the response for me has been the most surprising. I thought people were like, oh, we miss the sequins, we miss your Judy and your Marlena. But that hasn't happened. Well, because they're not missing you. You're still there. I'm still there. <laughs> Damaged and everything. No, <laughs> no, because, you know, I've... Post-COVID, everything has changed. I don't even dye my hair anymore. We are all different people. <laughs> I got used to sitting at home on the couch and discovered I actually quite enjoy it. I don't have to go out five nights a week. We need to form a club because that's what happened to me. I loved not having to face the world. It was weird because mm. people say, oh, you must It was be... a shock at first, but then... At first it was yeah. a terrible shock. And then I did wonder after lockdowns ended, mm. have I become institutionalised? Rather than enjoying sitting in my lounge room reading a book with a glass of wine, am I actually enjoying it or have I just convinced myself that I'm enjoying it? Mm. So much psychological damage to peel I away. No, I think I enjoyed it. It's weird. You know, but yeah, like initially, no. Oh my God. Initially I was, what is this horror? Where's the job? Where's the work? And then, yeah, I, I, I just embraced, you know. I remember going out to the shops was an ordeal. Mm. Hated it. When I had to. For well, food. I'm <laughs> glad you have embraced <laughs> everything, including this new show, this new singing technique, this new style of you. Paul Campus, yes. I'm looking forward to seeing kind of uh, this kind of new beginning. Yes, I like that, Richard. Yeah. I like that idea. Dry My Tears is on mm. at 45 downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane in Melbourne, uh, on now until the 28th of May, and you can book by going to 45downstairs.com. That's the words, 45downstairs.com. Jump online, book some tickets, and see the incomparable Paul Capsis in Dry My Tears. Paul, as always, an absolute delight to chat. Thank you, Richard. Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>